your regularly scheduled program for a special announcement. The United States is headed for an entitlement crisis. Social Security and Medicare are going broke. You are going to have to pay the bill. You are going to have to pay the bill. Welcome to the Debt Dialogues, where you'll learn about the coming entitlement crisis, how it affects you, and what you can do about it. Here's your host, Ayn Rand Institute Fellow, Don Watkins. My guest today is Diana Furchgott Roth. Diana is the former chief economist of the U.S. Department of Labor and a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research. Diana, welcome to the Debt Dialogues. It's great to be with you. So today I want to talk about the recent protests of fast food workers who are claiming to be underpaid. Um, But first, can you give some background to those who haven't been following the story, who the protesters are and what it is they're asking for? There are groups called Fast Food Forward, Fight for 15, Strike for 15, and many of these, these are worker centers funded by unions such as the SEIU and the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. And they are purporting to represent fast food workers and saying that they want fast food workers to be paid $15 an hour. The problem is the fast food workers did not elect them. Uh, and you can't just have a group coming along and saying that they represent you when there isn't any evidence for that. Uh, if, if, if you're making seven twenty-five an hour and you want a raise, it's unlikely you would right away ask for double your salary. And if fast food uh, workers were forced to pay, were paid $15 an hour, in other words, if government regulations required McDonald's and Burger King and Wendy's to pay $15 an hour, they'd be hiring a very different kind of worker. So that's the situation we have, where there are nationwide strikes called purportedly by fast food workers, but really by these union-funded groups that purport to represent them. Now, even calling them strikes seems a little odd. I mean, at most they seem to be protests of a marginal number of workers um, can you say a little bit just about what what have been the scale of these protests and have they had any uh, effect that you can discern? Uh, the, well, there's been a lot of press. There's been a lot of press coverage. I don't know how much effect it's actually had on the restaurants. The restaurants seem to be keeping going, and when you see people protesting, you can't see whether they're fast food, food workers or or whether they're not. So there seems to be a lot of publicity, uh, but not necessarily fast food uh, restaurants closing down because of lack of workers. We're not finding that everybody walks out and that the restaurant can't operate. So let's take a step back then and get a kind of bigger picture of the, the situation. Why do fast food workers make you know relatively small income or uh, wages compared to most workers? And I guess the even broader question is, what determines wages absent government influence? Well, wages are determined by basically supply and demand. There aren't very many people who are paid minimum wage. Department of Labor data show that it's fewer than 3% of working Americans are paid, uh, are, are paid at minimum wage levels or less. You can be paid less if you are a tipped worker. If you get tips and then your wage is less, but you get tips to make up. That's fewer than 3% of working Americans. 
So uh, restaurants advertise jobs at a particular wage, and if they get people to fill the jobs at that wage, then uh, then they hire them, and so that is basically how the wage is determined. And so, but why is it smaller, say, for fast food workers than for, you know, let's say a, a an engineer? Uh, because the skills required are different, and also the population is different. The type of worker is different. So the skills are relatively rudimentary. That makes it easy for someone who wants to get a quick job in the summer, uh, such as a teenager. It's the route to entry into the workforce. So, for example, my first job, my first paying job, was scooping ice cream at Baskin Robbins for then about $3.25 an hour, whereas at the age of 15 or 16, I couldn't have got a job as an engineer. Uh, that takes a BA in engineering, sometimes a PhD. So that requires more skills. So jobs that require more skills or more experience have to pay more. And employers have to pay those individuals more to retain them or else they'll go work for someplace else. So the thing about fast food workers is it's very basic work. It doesn't require a lot of education. It's easy to get in and out of. And that's why, on average, each fast food position for a year has three different people who work in it. Because someone comes from the summer and then will leave. Someone comes and then leaves. There's a lot of turnover as fast food workers get better jobs. Because you're not going to work at a minimum wage job if you can find something better. And it's an entry ramp to the labor market. You get some experience, you move up. So what, though, is wrong with raising the minimum wage? The argument that's made is, look, you know, you can't support a, a family, possibly not even yourself, on um, minimum wage. So, you know, what's the harm in increasing it? Well, first of all, not that many minimum wage workers are supporting families. The average wage, according to the Census Bureau, the average household income of a family with a minimum wage worker in it is about $52,000 a year. For a family that has a teen minimum wage worker, it's $62,000 a year. And for a family without a teen worker, it's about $42,000 a year. So first of all, the number of minimum wage workers who are in poverty, uh, or who come from families uh, that are in poverty, are relatively small. There's a relatively small intersection between minimum wage workers and families who are in poverty. There are many more families in poverty than there are minimum wage workers. So even if we increase the minimum wage, it wouldn't solve the problem of poverty. But could you repeat your question? Yeah, that, I mean, that sets up the, the main point that um, this isn't an issue of can people live or not. But then the question is, What's the harm in raising the minimum wage? Right. The harm in raising the minimum wage is that then a different kind of people are employed. So if you have to pay $15 an hour, then you hire a different kind of person than if you have to pay seven twenty-five an hour. Maybe you will get uh, iPads that people can order their food on, for example. Or maybe there will be more self-service checkouts. You'll have a more skilled workers and you'll have a better combination of technology and labor you'll have more technology. So that means that the people with skills at 7.25 an hour won't be employed, and that's not fair to them. Because if uh, you have skills 
at 7.25 an hour, but there's no 7.25 jobs, there's only $15 an hour, then you're basically out of the workforce. You're unemployed. And that's why the teen unemployment rate's about 20%. The African-American teen unemployment rate's about 30%. Uh, the youth unemployment rate's about 11 or 12% right now. Those are far above the national averages of 5.8%. And together with uh, the minimum wage, 7.25 an hour, employers pay workers' comp, unemployment insurance, social security, that adds up to about 8.25. So if you have skills under eight, if the minimum wage is $15 an hour, but you have skills of 8.25 an hour, you're not gonna get hired at $15. And if you have skills less than 825 an hour, you're not going to get a job in the current situation. So we basically have a law in the United States that if you have skills less than about $8 an hour, you're not going to get a job. You're not allowed to work. And that's really un-American. As President Obama would say, that's not who we are as a country, preventing people, low-skilled people from working. It would be even worse if the wage were $15 an hour. Now, does the... What does a minimum wage generally, are there going to be workers who are going to see their incomes rise rather than find themselves priced out of the market? Uh, I think that the number of uh, workers in general who would see their incomes rise without a commensurate in increase in skills is relatively low because once the position turns over, the employer is going to hire someone with higher skills. Nothing comes for free. Plus, the price of the goods would go up. If someone has to pay $15 an hour instead of $7.25 an hour, then they're going to have to charge more for fast food or whatever the service is. And the people who buy that are going to buy less of it. So there's a lower demand. If we could magically wave a magic wand and make people better off with the government setting a minimum wage of $15 an hour, or let's say setting it at the average wage, which is $24 an hour, uh, then it would be great and we would be doing it and countries all over the world would be doing it. But everyone realizes that the government can't set a minimum wage of $24 an hour. They say that's too high. Some people wouldn't get jobs. But it's the same with $15 an hour. Some people don't get jobs, wouldn't get jobs if it were $15 an hour. And some people aren't getting jobs because it's $7.25 an hour. It just depends how many people you want to keep unemployed. And I would suggest the number you want to keep unemployed involuntarily should be zero. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I have a similar story to you in that, I mean, I started working for, I think it was right around the minimum wage. It was maybe $5.30 an hour. And uh, I, I surely wasn't worth significantly more than that. But um, I mean, at least, you know, I had parents who could take care of me and send me to college. But if that was my only route to building a skill set, building a resume, making connections, I, it's really tragic. And I don't think the debate should be how many people are we going to forcibly prevent from making something of their lives and how can we assess a trade-off between that and somebody else getting higher pay? I, I mean, I think it's clear that like leave it to the voluntary decisions of individuals and recognize that the best way to have a job worth more than 725 an hour is to get a job even if it is at 725 an hour and then build those skills and that and those connections there and uh, there are people who uh, who do work their way up to being managers uh, there are people the CEO of Walmart started out 
uh, loading trucks for Walmart and worked his way up to CEO. So just because you have one of those jobs doesn't mean that you don't work your way up. Labor turnover in the United States is uh, very substantial. Uh, we have a labor force of about 156 million. Every year there are about 50 million uh, separations, about 50 million hires. There's a, the workforce is in a constant state of flux, and people move up uh, when, uh, when, uh, when they leave their jobs. They often uh, move up when they leave voluntarily. They leave for something better. And uh, we need to make sure that uh, people's skill sets are growing so that they have more opportunities. If we're talking about why can't people get a $15 an hour job rather than $7.25 an hour, we have to see how we can train them and educate them so they can get that $15 an hour job without the government mandating it. Well, and one of the things that bothers me is that jobs such as in the fast food industry are called dead-end jobs. And not only is you explain, does it allow you to start building the skill set that then you can go forward and do other things, but even within the companies themselves, it's not simply that some people do rise. One of the benefits is that they give you a path, a clear-cut path. So like I'm a writer, and to figure out how to become a professional writer, it's not like somebody lays out step one, step two, step three. But for these jobs, it, it's, you know, you have to work really hard, but there's a clear cut path to better yourself that I think is underappreciated by people. Right. Exactly. Yes. Yes. And even if it's just developing the skills to show up on time, stay the whole day, be polite to the coworkers you don't like, not swear at the boss who you don't like, all those skills are going to give you a good reference at the end of that period, and that'll be your stepping stone to the next job. But a lot of minimum wage workers are doing this part-time at the same time they are studying or training for other kinds of professions. They don't intend to make it a long-term career, and uh, there's plenty of other careers out there. Now, um, one question I have is, so what about jobs outside the fast food industry that, let's say, right now are paying... 14 or 15 dollars an hour does if the government did raise the minimum wage to something approaching 15 dollars an hour is there any negative effect that that would have on them some people say that that would make the wages in those jobs go up also so that there would be increases uh, all along the line uh, that would also raise the cost of goods so there would be other effects also and there are some union contracts that are tied to the minimum wage. So those, uh, that would, um, those wages would rise also. And if people have the skills or uh, work harder for those higher wages, then there won't be any other effects. But people can't just be paid a higher wage to do the same thing without having other effects. And those other effects include... Uh, more unemployment and fewer people being hired and a different kind of person being hired. As I said before, when you're hiring a $15 an hour person, you're hiring a different person from a $7.25 an hour person. Yeah, and so, I mean, to some people that sounds like a good thing. Oh, wages are going to go up for a lot of people. But as you're pointing out, it's on the backs of people who aren't able to even make a living. And, I mean, if you, you know, if you're paying somebody $15 an hour, it you know it very well could be it's a low skilled job but that's much more unpleasant the the working conditions are so on um and 
the fact that you're now having to pay more in order to get people to perform those jobs, it's not a benefit when you consider that it, it really is coming at the expense of uh, other individuals. But I guess uh, – so one objection that's raised though to this to, – to what you're saying is that, look, we have studies that allegedly show – the the minimum wage doesn't actually have an impact at least not in you know uh, the range of uh a, a few dollars more set aside a 100% increase what what do we what's the state of the uh literature on the impact the uh impacts of the minimum wage well there was a paper recently published by two professors at the University of California uh Clements and Wither and uh they found that Raising the minimum wage does have an effect on low-skilled workers and teens. There have also been studies by David Newmark that show the same thing. When you're looking at aggregate studies, studies of the whole economy, and you're just looking for something where um, that, that affects a very small percentage of the workforce, and with the minimum wage it's 3%, then it's difficult to find an overall aggregate figure. Uh, the economy will probably do fine. Employers will probably do fine. They'll just hire a different kind of person. They'll hire a $15 an hour person instead of $7.25 an hour person. The people who won't do fine are the people at the bottom of the income ladder, the people at the bottom of the skill set, who all of a sudden find that there are no jobs for them. And as an example, one can look at Europe, Spain, for example, where youth unemployment is about 50%, and other countries in Europe where young people just cannot find jobs. And interestingly enough, productivity is probably higher in Europe if you look at output per hour. One reason for that is when you take all the low-skilled people out of the labor market and you say you can't work, you're just going to be unemployed, and you just have the high-skilled people working, yes, you have an economy that's more productive, but that's not the right way to look at it. That's not the only measure. We need to have... um, an economy and a society where everyone has opportunities both to enter the labor force and to rise within the labor force. I'm a lot more concerned about job mobility. Can the 7.25 an hour worker move up and get a job paying a higher wage without a government mandate? And does he or she have the skills to do that? Are we forcing these teens into high schools with 55% graduation rates? Or are they going to graduate knowing some math, being able to write, uh, 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 write competently and having the skills to go on and be trained by an employer for a higher paying job. And these are the questions we need to be worrying about. Rather than artificially, will the government impose uh, wage requirements on employers to force them to pay 15 or $20 an hour? We need to be asking, what can we do so that our teens, when they graduate from high school, get well-paying jobs? What can we do to guide them into community colleges, into high-return professions, where they can uh, get uh, training in computer programming or healthcare services, where they can earn for themselves uh, decent salaries. That's what we need to be asking. And why aren't we doing more about that? Why aren't these demonstrators who are demonstrating for higher fast food for minimum wage workers, uh, are they demonstrating for higher wages? Why don't they go to some of these failing high schools and demonstrate in front of them and say, these high schools shouldn't be allowed because these high schools are going to graduate people who can only earn seven twenty-five an hour. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really revealing point. Um, 
I guess one more kind of counterexample to to your view is people will argue, and you'll read this, for instance, in Paul Krugman's work, and um, but many other people make the point, which is that if we look back at you know say forty years ago or fifty years ago, you would have a minimum wage that um, adjusted for inflation was you know higher than what we're we have today, and yet unemployment was low. Um, this you know standard of living for the general public was increasing rapidly, and so doesn't this show that the minimum wage is one tool for lifting people up at the bottom? We had a much higher growth rate in those days. Right now, we have a two percent GDP growth rate, and yes, if we had a four percent GDP growth rate, uh, then the minimum wage. Increases wouldn't affect so many people because employers would be demanding more uh, labor and there'd be more opportunities to move up. But uh, the increase in the minimum wage that's proposed is very substantial. Seven twenty-five to ten dollars and ten cents, as President Obama has proposed, that's a forty percent jump. That's a lot higher than some minimum wage increases have been in the past. Uh, and the fifteen dollar and our minimum wage. That's an increase of over 100%. So these are not increases uh, that can really be absorbed by the market without substantial uh, negative consequences. And the negative consequences, as I was saying before, were not to, are not to the employers, but to low-skill individuals and teens who will find they cannot get jobs anymore. So I want to turn briefly to the issue of unions. You noted the unions are uh, behind these protests. Um, aren't unions a good thing for workers? Shouldn't we be happy to see them trying to you know, do things that are going to bolster their influence? Uh, and, and back to the historical point, weren't they key to making sure that workers were earning more um, increasing, participating the progress of the economy, and hasn't the decline of unions been responsible for today's stagnating or alleged, allegedly stagnating wages for most Americans? Well, those, uh, that's, uh, uh, those are a lot of questions, and yes, there are unions that do a very good job uh, for their workers. If you look at the maritime union, for example, it makes sure that uh, People who go to sea have new certifications so they can work their way up in the labor force, in their own industry. If they're certified for higher-paying jobs and more skills, then they can get higher-paying jobs uh, when they come back and they go on their next tour of duty. Uh, But the SEIU that's demonstrating for the fast food workers, they are not elected by these fast food workers. They want to unionize them, but they are not elected and they're not representing them. Just as the United Food and Commercial Workers that hold the Black Friday strikes for Walmart, they have not been elected either because Walmart employees have decided they're better off without paying the union dues that go along with union membership. There's union dues that are needed to pay the salaries of the union officials. Uh, There's also mandatory payments into union pension plans, many of which are underfunded. There, uh, there's also the lack of merit bonuses. People have to be uh, paid by seniority, and if you work particularly well, you're not able to get a bonus under many union contracts. Uh, union contracts with Kroger, 
which uh, are online. We have put them online at economics21.org. Those show Kroger workers are not paid $15 an hour. So here the SEIU is demonstrating to pay fast food workers $15 an hour, but those are, but uh, many workers who have union contracts are not paid $15 an hour. But I think that it should be up to worker choice. If uh, there's an election and workers vote for union representation, then of course they should have union representation. What is troubling is when these unions say they represent individuals, but they have not been voted in. And another troubling aspect uh, is um, that these uh, uh, unions basically uh, step in and assert that they are acting in the workers' self-interest, whereas in fact they are not doing so. So let's end with this. Um, what do you think the most important things, say top you know, one to three things, the government could do so that we can start maximizing people's ability to um, pro- progress uh, economically? Well, that's an excellent question. And before that, I just want to add one little, one more word on why unions so much want to unionize fast food workers. It's because of the high turnover in the fast food industry, where, as I mentioned, there's about three people filling each position a year. And when you join a union, you don't just pay dues, you also pay an initiation fee that can be about 50 or $60 to join. If you're joining for two or three or four or 20 years, 50 or $60 isn't very much. But if you, you have the job for three or four months and you pay $50, then someone else takes over and they pay $50. Then a third person takes over and they get $50. That's $150 per person, per position right there for the union that goes into the union coffers on top of the 2 to 4% dues that are paid. That's why it's extremely lucrative for unions to be unionizing the fast food industry and why they are focusing on the fast food industry, because of the rapid turnover, which needs to leads to more initiation fees. Now, as to what the government could be doing to help workers progress, I would say the number one thing that we could be doing is increasing the quality of our education. Children should not be forced to go to schools where there is a 55% graduation rate. They should be allowed to choose another school. Their parents should be allowed to choose another school for them. Uh, as uh, Governor Bobby Jindal has done in Louisiana, where if there's a failing school, the parent can choose another school and the tax dollars that would go uh, to, uh, with that child, follow the child to the new school. And the only way we can raise workers' wages and give them a better quality of life is if we give them a better education and enable them to earn more on their own. Free giveaways aren't going to do it. Making somebody pay more for a service that is worth less isn't going to do it. The only thing that's going to do it is if the kid graduates from high school uh, with uh, good grades, A's and B's, and then goes to a college or community college program where they learn a set of skills that will enable them uh, to have a good job. And the good job could be it could be engineering, it could be welding, it could be computer programming, it could be working as a physical therapist or as an occupational therapist. There are innumerable high-skill, high-return jobs uh, where you can get qualified at a community college at a relatively low cost, about $2,500 a year, and graduate with little debt. So we need to be focusing on, first, 
getting kids to graduate from high school. Second, steering them into an appropriate curriculum at a community college where if they've completed that, if they want, they can go on to four-year college with two years' worth of credit and complete four-year college with just two, year of four, two years of four-year college fees, which are much higher, and give them the skill sets to move up in the workforce. We are not doing nearly enough of that, and that is why we read so much about inequality, the need to raise the minimum wage, all those other issues, which are basically come from the problem of uh, lack of skills and lack of a good education. My guest today has been Diana Furchcott Roth. Diana, thanks again for being part of the Debt Dialogues. Great to be with you. Thanks. So the one thing I would stress from this interview is that we shouldn't be looking at the debate over the minimum wage through a utilitarian lens. It's not a question of a trade-off between creating more unemployment for some people and raising other people's wages and trying to determine, well, how does that bounce out? That implies that some people are disposable, namely those without a lot of skills or a lot of education. And then instead, the way to think about this issue is in terms of rights and who has a right to decide what fair pay is. And what we should be protecting is the freedom of employers, employees to voluntarily reach those agreements, to reach agreements that are mutually advantageous. Now, that doesn't mean that we're unconcerned about people's standard of living. On the contrary, it means that we recognize that it's immoral to raise some people's standard of living by sacrificing or reducing other people's standard of living, which is at best what the minimum wage does. Instead, what we should want is a free market that raises everybody's standard of living, where everybody, every productive person is able to thrive and prosper better and better over time, including individuals who are starting out at the bottom. They should be free to seek out the best opportunities available to them. Will that sometimes mean starting with limited opportunities? Absolutely. But those opportunities are indispensable for finding and creating better and better ones. And that is what policies like the minimum wage destroy. And so ultimately, it's the supporters of the minimum wage, supporters of coercive, giving coercive powers to unions, people who want to interfere with the free voluntary decisions of people in the labor market. They're the ones who cannot claim to care about people's prosperity, their standard of living, their ability to flourish. With that, it's time to bring this podcast to a close. If you enjoy it, please take a minute to review us on iTunes. To learn more, you can visit endthedebtdraft.com. And for the latest, I encourage you to like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash debtdraft, and let the world know that it's time to put an end to entitlement exploitation. See you next time. Debt Dialogues is property of the Ayn Rand Institute. Its content is intended for private use only. 